You know, it's interesting where we tend to fall in our studies. I've watched over the years, over the, the last five years of going through the Bible, and I'm always amazed at how God is so timely, even though we didn't really plan it. I didn't, I didn't sit down and plan out to hit Matthew 10 tonight. It just happens to be where we are. But it is an incredibly encouraging chapter in the Bible, especially for representatives of Jesus Christ. On Sunday we began looking at a group of representatives, the first group. Remember apostles, apostolos in the Greek means sent to represent. And that's what those 12 guys were. Now there are, there are apostles today, I believe. It's a, it's a little different designation, uh, but there are some similarities. But Ephesians chapter 4 talks about five gifts that are given to the church. We've called them in the past shepherding gifts. And there are five different gifts, and you can look that up and study it on your own time. I'm already going to be uh, short for time tonight. But one of those gifts is the gift of apostle. An apostle, someone who's sent to represent. An apostle is someone who, um, we had a, a meeting several months ago with our shepherds, and we're talking about the different gifts, and, and kind of recognize that an apostle is one who tends to have several of the shepherding gifts and tends to be called uh, oftentimes to the mission field or to oversight of various ministries. But the original apostles were sent to represent, and I think that that aspect, at least that definition, can be applied and should be applied to all believers. That our call by Jesus is to move from non-believer to disciple to apostle. At least in our hearts and attitudes and the way that we, we live our lives. We're sent to represent. We're not just called to be followers. But we are followers of Jesus. And even in our representation, we only set forth an example. I, I would say to you, follow me only as I follow Jesus. I follow other spiritual leaders in my life only as they follow Jesus Christ. But I myself am sent to represent, to represent Jesus day in and day out in the world. That's the definition of apostle. And we met the first twelve, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, Thaddeus, Simon, and of course, Judas. And as the, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 10, we see these one-time disciples, student followers of Jesus, now shifted into a new role. They're being called apostles who are sent out to represent. Before we even begin, let me ask you, which one are you? Weigh it in your life. Am I a disciple of Jesus Christ? Good, that's good news. Or am I, at least at a heart level, am I an apostle? Am I sent to represent? Am I called more to do more than, than to sit down Am I called to do more than just to come in and be part of it? Because the disciples, remember in Matthew chapter 5, we saw a great crowd of them go up the mountainside. There were throngs of disciples who were following Jesus. But the second it got tough, guess what? The disciples split. When it got a little tougher, even the apostles would split. But are you called to be a disciple, a follower, someone who comes kind of day in and day out? I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. But it doesn't have that dramatic impact in your life that says, I can't do anything that doesn't directly tie me to what I've been called to, to to living for Jesus day in and day out. Whether it's in my job, whatever I'm doing, I'm not talking about you all being called to be pastors or missionaries. The sent to represent calling is a calling to represent Jesus in the marketplace, whatever your profession is. Whatever you happen to do in your life. Which one are you? Apostle or representative of Christ? We are his house of representatives, which I think is apropos today. 
We're the house of representatives of Jesus Christ. But let me ask you, do you think the apostles ever got discouraged? Do you think there was ever a time? Even after the resurrection of Christ, spirit-filled men, do you think it was ever difficult for them? We were talking about this morning the fact that um, the apostles all knew each other, were intimately connected, close, bonded friends, brothers, several of them. And how it must have been for John the Apostle when he learned of the death, the martyrdom of his brother James. Remember Sunday we talked about that James was the first apostle martyred for the rest of John's life who lived longer than any of the other apostles. He would carry that, that memory that my brother was killed for what we believe in. With every phone call that they must have gotten, you know, Bartholomew was just killed. Thaddeus was just taken out. How do you think that felt? Do you ever think, you know, I I think of Thomas over in India by himself, preaching the gospel, sharing the truth, planting churches, and getting wires that other apostles have been killed. And he had to walk with that. Do you think they ever got, I'm sure they got discouraged. What a wonderful thing the gospel letters are. Because for the apostles at any time, all they had to do was roll back open the scroll and go to the 10th chapter of Matthew. They didn't have chapters at that point, but they would have known where it was. That commission, the first commission of Jesus. Man, go back there. What did He say would happen? How did He say to live? Because this chapter, regardless of any circumstance of our lives, is one of the most encouraging chapters in the entire Gospel of Matthew. And you just happen to come tonight to hear it. So I hope you need some encouragement because Matthew has it for you, the Holy Spirit has for you. Last night, America voted against marriage and for abortion. Last night, America supported the homosexual agenda. Last night, we in Washington State took another step toward euthanasia, voting in assisted suicide. I was discouraged. In fact, at one point in the evening, realizing I had a full day today and we were short on milk, I told the kids, I'm going to the store. Now, normally on election night, I'm the guy glued to the TV, like from start to finish. I was the one who was up all night in 2004. I was up all night in 2000. Last night, about 7.30, I was done. You know, when they called Ohio, I just said, I'm going to go to the store. And I got in the car and I, and I started driving to the store and I was, I was surprised at myself. Because, as Carol, as you said, when you, when you came in, you know what? It's just an election. An important one. I'm not, I, I, Carol wasn't undermining the importance of it, but you know, we, we've had elections the entire history of this country. And the reality is it doesn't really change the truth of the Gospel. It doesn't change the power of Jesus, the ability of the Holy Spirit to work in this world. That has not changed today. But I was bummed. I'll admit it. It wasn't the agenda that I was looking for. So I drive to the store, and as I'm driving there, I, the Lord brought to mind something Spencer Headley told me on Sunday morning. Spencer said, and this is before the election happened, he said, you know what, regardless of what happens on Tuesday, he said, when you were about to start teaching, before you said anything, so the Lord gave me a picture in my mind. A picture of lanterns. Just a bunch of lanterns all lined up. And he said, and I felt like the Lord said, Spencer, the lanterns shine more brightly in the darkness. And I thought, that's cool. And he added something else. Spencer's own thinking here. He just said, you know, it's one thing to have a lantern out in in the semi-light. Which honestly, set aside political affiliations for a moment. 
That's where we've been for the last eight years. We've been in the semi-light. We have not been in the glory of the kingdom under the Bush administration. For those of you who are strong Bush supporters, that wasn't the kingdom. There are things that I agreed strongly with. There are some things he did that I disagreed with. But it was semi-light. It wasn't the glory of God that we saw in the presidency for the last eight years, any more than it is going to be in the next eight years. Lord willing, however long He's got for us. The semi-light. Think about this. In the dusk of the morning, in the early dawn, when the sky is gray and the lights are on 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 a street, the street lights are on, they're really not that bright. In the pitch black of darkness, they shine very brightly. That is the calling of those who are sent to represent. To shine in the darkness. So the reality is, in Spencer's words again, he said, hey, if it gets darker, bring it on. Because we have opportunity now to shine brighter. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 19, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in in God. Here's what you need to do. Walk in the truth. Continue to be in the Word. Pray in the Spirit. And your deeds will begin to be seen as having been wrought in God. Made by God. We will manifest more of the Lord Jesus when we're simply following Him in the darkness than we do in the semi-light, which is sometimes even more deceptive. So here we are, and it's a time, I think, that can be very exciting for people sent to represent bright lanterns in a dark world. Well, we're going to pick up this, this teaching of Jesus. He's called the Apostles. And he's going to send them out with the first commission. We're going to pick that up in verse 5. But let me say a a quick, quick word of prayer before we get on into this. Lord Jesus, I am excited tonight for opportunity before us. Father, we have a new administration. I pray that every believer will begin to pray fervently for our new president. And will pray fervently for those elected into Congress, Republican or Democrat or Independent. Father, may we be a people of integrity and love and compassion who see it more important to pray for the soul of those we disagree with than to condemn them. May we not go into a place of judgment, but Father, be in the place of simply following after Jesus, people of light sent to represent. May we represent all that is Jesus. And Father, tonight as we go through this, I pray for encouragement. I, I see this as an amazingly encouraging teaching that Jesus gives as He prepares His first apostles to go out. May we be prepared as well and lift it up to shine for You, Father, in Jesus' name. And Holy Spirit, teach us. Be our guide through these words tonight. Amen. Verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And we showed on Sunday that that was the first commission. It was to Israel exclusively. It was not to go out to the Gentiles, not yet. That's the great commission. This is the first commission. And as you go, 
He said, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, or even two coats or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. Whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and stay at his house until you, ha- until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting or your, your salutation. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Jesus knew that there would be people waiting for the coming kingdom. Jesus knew that there were people in Israel at that time who were looking for it. We know that at Jesus' birth. Remember over in the, in the book of Luke? i show this to you. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 and verse 34 or so. Actually, it's a little bit before that. A little further up. A man named Simeon, verse 25. A righteous and devout man looking for the consolation of Israel. There it is. So even at the birth of Jesus, there was someone there. There was another, there was a prophetess, Anna, looking for him, waiting for the kingdom. And so as Jesus begins, you go back to Matthew 10, as Jesus begins his ministry, he tells his disciples, his new apostles now, I'm going to send you out, but there are going to be people looking for you. The worthy people. Those whose eyes are fixed on the coming kingdom. And when you go into the city, find out who those people are. They're the ones who are going to take care of you. You don't need to take anything. You don't need to take extra money, an extra you know, money bag. You don't have to take an extra staff or jackets or anything. Just go and find those people because there are people waiting, as Simeon was, for the consolation of Israel, and they will take care of you. In this we find the first encouragement tonight. I'm going to give you a bunch of these, so if you want to jot them down to follow through. The first one is pay attention to your reception. Pay attention to your reception. Now I'm speaking, I'm assuming, to a people who are sent to represent. And if you're not sure if you're sent to represent, if you think I'm just a follower sent to sit in a pew and keep it warm, <laughs> think again. Because you have been called by Jesus Christ. Not a single person called by Jesus is called to sit. We're called to go. So as people sent to represent, be sensitive to your reception. We're talking about a sensitivity to receptivity. Jesus says, give your greetings, speak your peace, but pay attention to how you are received as you bring Jesus to somebody else. It is important to note that. We're not supposed to be, you know, the, the old traditional uh, negative comment of Bible bashers or Bible bangers. We're not supposed to go to people and go, and, and they're, they're going, I just don't really need this right now. Yes, you do. We know, you know. That's not what we're called to. Are they receptive to the message? That's the very first thing Jesus says. Look for those who are receptive. Pay attention to that. Be aware of that. There are people who are ready to pick up the good news and there are those who aren't. And so if you come across those who aren't, then you just step back and okay, cool. I'm going to look for those who are receptive. Paul wrote to Titus saying in uh, Titus chapter 3 verse 8, This is a trustworthy statement and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. 
These things are good and profitable for men. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And you know, gang, there are some people who when you bring the gospel message to them, all they want to do is fight, argue, and detour the conversation away from truth. They don't want to be convicted. The very name Jesus is convicting enough, and so they will push it away. Gang, it is not worth your time to get into fights. It's not worth your time to get into battles. I'm not saying the person is not worth it. But I am saying that you may not be the person to bring the gospel to them. It may not be the right time. Their heart might not be there. And so if the reception is not good, you back off, you look for someone who is receptive. Sometimes an unreceptive heart just needs a bit of tweaking to get the right signal. You you remember uh, the old antennas on rooftops of homes? We don't see that very often anymore. Or the rabbit ears on TV. I remember as a kid, my dad standing there holding the rabbit ear with his arm out, trying to get the reception on the TV. You know, trying to get just get it to work. I remember dad up on the roof, bending it, coming down, turning on the TV, now going back up the roof, bending again. It's in the days before cable and before everything was digital. That's the way we had to deal with it. And that's what we're talking about. Is someone's antenna attuned to the Lord? Are they receptive to the message of the gospel? If so, great. That's the house you want to stay in. That's the person you want to pour out the gospel message to. If they're not receptive, move on. In fact, the second thing to note, Jesus actually says, shake off the rejection. Shake off the rejection. At the end of verse 13, He says, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you, verse 14, or heed your words as you go out of the city... Or that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. This was something the Pharisees did. And Jesus knew this. If a Pharisee had to, for whatever reason, then they normally wouldn't do this at all. But if they had to go into a Gentile territory or a Gentile city, or possibly into the place of the Samaritans, as they left the city, they literally would kick their shoes to get the dust off their feet, signifying, I am now separating myself from you. I have nothing to do with you anymore. I am shaking the dust off my feet. And Jesus is saying, (laughs) do this to Jewish cities if they reject Messiah. I know they're your people. I know they're my people. But if they reject Messiah, you shake off the rejection. Shake it off, man. Discouragement is like dust. It really is. Dust, especially when the storm comes, it turns to mud and it sticks to you. It's hard to walk in that stuff. You've had muddy shoes before. Just, you're clumping around and it's hard to move. If you carry every refusal or denial or negative response with you, guess what? Eventually it's going to start sticking. It's going to make your walk difficult. You're going to get bogged down by the muddy weight of discouragement. And Jesus says, shake it off, man. Besides, it's not you they're rejecting. It's me. And so if you're rejected bringing the gospel message, shake it off. Let it go. Now you might say, I get that, but the Sodom and Gomorrah judgment statement seems a little harsh. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. That is, if they reject the message of Messiah. Why is that? Consider the contrast. You know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. God fried them. Took them out. No residue whatsoever. And it's more tolerable for them than just for someone who says no to Jesus. Why is that? Well... The truth is, gang, people who hear the gospel and reject it are actually worse off than those who never heard the gospel at all. How so? John chapter 15, verse 22, Jesus said, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. 
But now they have no excuse for their sin. He's not saying that they're sinless. But he's saying if I hadn't brought the truth to them, they wouldn't be responsible for knowing the truth. Because they wouldn't have a clue about it. Jesus said, He who hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my Father as well. Once someone has heard the message, here's what he's saying, they they no longer have any excuse for not responding to the message. There's a new level of responsibility. Paul put it this way in Romans 1 verse 20. He said, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Paul takes it a step further. He says it's not just those who have heard the gospel message and rejected it who have no excuse. It's everybody. Because creation is the gospel message. All you have to do is open your eyes and look around and see the graciousness and kindness and mercy and power and love of our God. And so there's no excuse for not believing in the existence of God when you see what He's done. Hence, again, the need for bright lanterns. He said, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. And into that darkness come the lanterns bringing the truth. So the sad truth is God has given every opportunity for people to believe if we choose to reject that truth, we are left without excuse. Now, this commission is very different from what Jesus would say later. Right at the beginning here, as He launches out, He says, go, you're going to be taken care of, you don't have to worry about a thing, don't worry about it, leave all your stuff at home, just go to the first town and look for who's worthy, they will take care of you. Later, He would say this, Luke 22, verse 35, When I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. And he said, but now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. Whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you, I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, quote, and he was numbered with transgressors. He's quoting Isaiah 53. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. (laughs) They're ready to fight. And Jesus just says, that's enough. That's enough. He's not saying here, prepare to attack. Because now, in Luke 22, he's leaning into the, the Great Commission. This is a new game now. Man, when I sent you to Israel, there were people waiting for you. But now, Israel is about to reject me, the Messiah, and people are no longer going to be waiting for you. And that easy road in the First Commission is going to be replaced by a very difficult one in the Great Commission. He's not saying attack. He's not saying get ready to fight. He's not saying everybody's got to buy a sword so they can take on the enemy. In fact, later that same night, Peter took a swing at the slave, the very dangerous slave of the high priest. You know, little guy just standing there not doing anything, and Peter decides to make a point and draws a sword and hacks off the guy's right ear falls like a little orange slice on the ground there. Jesus picks it up, heals the guy, and he said in Matthew 26:52, "Put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword will perish by the sword." So obviously when Jesus said, "He who has no sword needs to buy one," he's not talking about buying a sword. What he's saying is, "Prepare because it's going to get hard. It's going to get tough. It's going to be unlike anything you have faced before. Why am I talking about that now? 
Because after verse 15, Jesus begins to shift gears a little bit. Through verse 15, we have the the first commission to go. Verse 16 on through the end of the chapter, Jesus begins to talk beyond the first commission. He begins to move further ahead. Watch this. Behold, verse 16, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Now see, that's very different right there. He was saying before, yeah, go to any city. They'll take care of you. Just find the guy who has an open home and an open heart. Now he's saying, I'm sending you out as sheep amidst wolves. Beware of them, verse 17. They will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them, to them, watch this, and to the Gentiles. We're starting to look at the Great Commission now. Because the First Commission was for Israel alone. Now he's indicating something else, something that will come later. He is looking ahead to that commission that would begin in Jerusalem and Judea, then spread to Samaria and even the remotest parts of the earth, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Why is he talking about this now? Why at the beginning of sending the apostles is all of a sudden he talking about something that was going to happen way later? Because the Father never leaves his children unprepared. And because Jesus, even now, is starting to get them ready for what was coming. Before the first commission even gets underway, Jesus prepares His representatives for the great commission. He will never send you, He will never send me out unprepared. Now, you might feel unprepared. You might think, I'm really not ready to go sit down with this person, have a cup of coffee, and tell the gospel to them. And, you know, you're up all night before reading, trying to find the right verse, and calling me... Thanks a lot for that. And trying to get ready to share with some. You might not feel prepared, but I guarantee you, Jesus will never send you into a situation where you can share the gospel when you are not prepared to do so. In fact, the reason that you're here tonight is part of that preparation. To be ready. To have word for that. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but He never sends us out unprepared. So he begins to look ahead to the Great Commission in their day and into our day and even beyond to the Tribulation period, which I'll show you in just a minute. But the third thing to note here, the third thing to note after shaking off your rejection note, brace yourself for repression. Brace yourself for repression. Jesus is saying to the apostles, get ready, it's going to be hard. Get ready. The road is not going to be easy. This is going to be painful. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be like you being a sheep in the middle of a wolf pen. What would happen if we did a little test here? I hear there's a pack of wolves now in the North Cascades. A pack of gray wolves. Hasn't been a pack of wolves there since the 1930s, but there's a group back. There's about five of them that are making their way, running around in the North Cascades. What if we were to get them here in the barn one night you know, a little cage up here, and put a sheep in the middle of the barn. And then we all go outside, and someone stands by the door, I would nominate Les to do this, and open up the cage, out come the wolves, he goes out the door, we close it, and we just wait. When we came back the next day, what do you think we'd find of that sheep among the wolves? They would tear him up. They would rip him to shreds. And he says, now I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And I think, wait a minute, Jesus, don't you love me? What are you doing? Why would you send me into this? Why would you put me, why did he put the church into what I believe was the worst place of persecution in all of history? Why would he birth the church then? Jesus would say, of course I love you. 
but I also love the wolves. And I gotta send you because I want the wolves to be saved as well. So he says, be smart. Be shrewd as serpents, innocent as doves, which seems like an oxymoron. How do you put that together? How are you both shrewd and... Have you ever met a shrewd businessman who was innocent? (laughs) A shrewd lawyer who was innocent? I mean, how does that work? Jesus says as we prepare for the repression, for the risks, for the challenges ahead, He says, don't be a doofus. My translation. Being a Christian doesn't mean being dumbed down. In fact, Christians should be the most informed, the most sharply intelligent people on the face of the planet. We should know everything about what's going on in this world. We are not called to duck our heads into the sand and ignore the world out there. We're called to know and to be informed and to be ready to fight. To be shrewd, he says, as serpents. In Luke chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus only uses this word shrewd a couple of times. And it says that, He said the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. That is an interesting statement. Jesus says, you know, you you followers of mine, you tend not to be as wise as secular people. What is he getting at here? This, This Greek word for shrewd, phronimos, phronimos is also translated intelligent or wise. It's being wise. Jesus used the same word also on the mount when He said, Everyone who hears these words of Mine and acts on them may be compared to a shrewd man. We like to say wise man there. But a man who is as wise as a serpent who built his house on the rock. Be wise, be shrewd, He says, but also be innocent. How do we do that? How do we develop a shrewd demeanor and also maintain our innocence in the Lord? Listen, shrewdness has to do with the mind or the soul. Innocence has to do with the heart or the spirit. Shrewdness is my intellect. That I am intellectually intellectually sharp and informed, but when it comes to my heart, my spirit, that is to remain innocent. I am not to become cynical and bitter in the world. I am not to become depressed and discouraged. I am to stay soft-hearted, moldable, and compassionate. Not easy to do. I'll tell you what, there's only one way to do it as a Christian in this world. And that is by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You try to go this road without the power of the Spirit and your heart will harden. I guarantee it. When things get tough, especially in ministry, it is easy for the heart to start to get hard. You've heard about it in the nursing profession. It's easier to be a nurse with a hard heart Because you see so much pain and so much misery and so much sorrow, it's easier just to shut it off, do your job, pop the needle into the vein, you know. And you've had them. I've had the nurses that were so gentle when they put that IV in. You don't even feel it. You're like, bless you. And they smile sweetly. And I can almost guarantee they're Christians. (laughs) I almost guarantee because there's a soft heart there. And then you have the other nurse who's like, where is that vein? (laughs) Can I give you a Bible? You know. The soft heart. He's talking about that kind of innocence. Which is why we pay attention to reception. Because if we're banging our heads against the wall of rejection constantly, the heart's going to start to get hard. If we're not shaking that rejection off when it does happen, but we're carrying that stuff, man, that person was a jerk when I just tried to talk about it. I can't, my, my neighbor won't even listen to me now. Every time she sees me coming, she turns the other direction. If we don't shake that stuff off, 
the spirit starts to close up. Now, historically, as well as today, there have been two sources, two primary sources of repression against the church, against Christians. First one might surprise you. It's repression by organized religion. And Jesus nails it. He says, they'll scourge you in their synagogues. Did you know in Jesus' day, in the synagogues, many of them, they had a little side room that was literally a tribunal room where if someone was was accused, especially of being a Christian, a Jewish man accused of being a Christian, he would be taken, dragged into the tribunal room. They had a rabbi who would read the law. They had a judge who would read the violations of this man. They had a disciplinarian with a flagellum who would whip the person. And oftentimes, while the whipping was going on, they had a cantor, a worship leader, who would be singing praises to God. What Jesus said would happen is exactly what happened. They will scourge you in their synagogues. But but don't blame the Jewish people. They weren't the only organized religion that repressed Christianity. The church did too. This is one of the surprising things. When people come up and go, oh, I don't believe in that whole Christianity church thing because, because of what the church did in history. And I'm like, yeah, the church killed Christians. They don't get that. Let me give you some examples. In 1229 A.D., the Bible was finally forbidden to the laity by the Roman Catholic Church. But a hundred years earlier, Rome was responsible. Check this out. You're not going to hear about this in church history courses unless you dig a little bit. Rome was responsible for the martyrdom of 2.5 million people who were called Waldensians. Why were they called Waldensians? Because they followed a guy whose name was Peter Waldo, and Peter Waldo simply wanted to teach the Bible. And Rome didn't want it. Rome realized if the people read the Bible for themselves, there's going to be some problems. And so there were 2.5 million people who were martyred simply because they wanted to have a Bible study. That's organized religion. Organized religion is not... This is not organized religion. When you think we're organized, look around. (laughs) But there's a big difference. Organized religion takes the Bible and makes it a legalistic thing, a hard thing, and starts to pile upon you thing after thing after thing that you have to accomplish to please God. That's organized religion. We're in an unorganized relationship. (laughs) The only organization in my faith is what the Lord gives me. And it's a relationship that we desire. Rome also killed a man by the name of John Wycliffe in 1384 for refusing to stop getting the Bible into the hands of his countrymen. A student of Wycliffe in 1415, a man by the name of John Huss, was burned alive by the church. In 1555, a couple of bishops... You can hear more about these, by the way, in our Revelation study, because I talk more at length about them. Bishops Ridley and Latimer were two guys who were burned at the stake for their refusal to stop teaching and giving the Bible to people in their churches. So yeah, they scourged them in the synagogues, the Jewish people who didn't understand what was going on with this new kingdom idea. But the church itself, the organized church, also scourged and martyred Christians. That's not even counting the Inquisition or the Crusades. What people would call blights on church history, I would say, no, that's organized religion. That's not the church I know. It's not the church of Jesus Christ. It's not the church the Bible talks about. That church, which has always been alive, is in the hearts of men and women who love Jesus and follow after Him. So, there's been repression by organized religion 
Jesus warned against it. There's also been an obvious repression by government. And when we study through the book of Acts, you can see that throughout the history of the the early church. Acts 24 through 26, in fact. See what Jesus says here? He said, They are going to, you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake. The Apostle Paul was brought before the governors in the book of Acts 24. Governors Felix and then Festus, who repeated Felix. He was Felix's uncle, (laughs) Uncle Festus. If you watch the Adams family, you'd find that humorous. But anyway, (laughs) Uncle Festus. Those two governors and then King Agrippa. So Paul was before governors and kings, exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. Repression by government. Will we see that in America? I hope not. I pray we never do. Although the reality is, like Spencer said on Sunday morning, bring it on. You tell me that I can't preach the gospel on a Sunday morning. Repression by organized religion, repression by government. Jesus is preparing for what will come later. But He's also preparing not only His apostles then, He's preparing us right now, even today. Verse 19, He says, and I love this, When they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say. It will be given you in that hour what you are to say. It is not you who speak. It is the Spirit of your Father, note that, the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. I love this because the very repression that government and religion always seem to to use against followers of Jesus, all it does is open up more opportunities to share the gospel. The more they clamp down, the more the gospel spreads. The harder it is for Christians to meet, the, the more Christians meet. The more rules and regulations government puts on people saying, no, you can't attend that church, and no, you can't go. Look at China right now. Christianity is exploding in China. We say, boy, I hope we're never as repressed as China. I kind of hope we are, because then maybe we'd see more people coming to church. Then maybe we'd see more small groups spreading out, because then, when it's hard in the darkness, the lanterns shine more brightly. So, fourth recommendation here, fourth encouragement of Jesus, pray for timely revelation. Pray for timely revelation that the words will be given to you when you need them. Pray it now. Lord, I just, whenever I have that divine appointment that I was not expected for, I'm asking you to give me the words to say. If ever I am accosted for my faith, would you give me the words to say? Right place, right time. Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, Sanctify Christ in your hearts. Sanctify Christ. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now, when I was a younger Christian and I heard that verse, it stirred me up. Okay, I've got to be ready to make a defense. So I went out and I bought Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict 1 and 2. I got several books on apologetics and how to defend my faith, and I started reading. And I put myself to sleep every night with those books. And I started to get really discouraged about that because I thought, there's no way I'm ever going to be ready to answer every question that comes. I feared being in that confrontation where someone would say, well, what about this? And I'd go, I, I, I don't know. I guess I'm... I, I don't know. <laughs> Does Peter mean that we need a course in apologetics? How do I know what to study? How do I know how to prepare? Listen to me on this. Let me free you up a little bit. Stay in the Word like you are right now. And pray for timely revelation. And that's all you have to do. Leave the rest up to the Spirit of your Father. He's promised to give you the Jesus' words, not mine. He's promised to give us the right words at the right time. So I say, be in the Word. Not trying to find the right verse to zing someone with. Just study the Word. Just be in it. Be reading it. Be taking it in. 
and pray in the Spirit that He will give you the right words at the right time. This is interesting to me. Leave the rest up to the Spirit of your Father. He says the Spirit of your Father will speak in you. This is the only time in the entire Bible where this phrase is used. The Spirit of your Father. We hear about the Spirit of Christ, Christ's Spirit. We hear about the Holy Spirit, which is the same Spirit. And now Jesus says, the Spirit of your Father. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit at a time when the best concept of the Holy Spirit that Jewish people had was a form of empowerment that God would give or take away somebody. He gave His Spirit to Saul, but then He took His Spirit away from Saul. He gave His Spirit to David, but David was the king, you know. This is before the Holy Spirit was poured out in mass over the church. And so the concept of the Holy Spirit, this is like brand new stuff. And so Jesus is making sure that they understand exactly who this Spirit is. God will give you the right word at the right time. God your Father, His Spirit, will speak to you. In Luke chapter 21 verse 14... In in Luke's version of the same teaching, he says, Make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. Now, I really like that verse. Don't prepare ahead. Don't crash study. I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. Who will? Jesus says, I will. Okay, so here he says, I will give you utterance. In Matthew, he says, the Spirit of your Father will give you utterance. Well, which is it? It's one and the same. Because again, as we look at the Trinity, speaking of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Spirit is the Spirit of the Father. The Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. So the Spirit of the Father is the one who will give you words to speak. And so I truly believe all the real preparation we need is to be consistent in the Word and constant in prayer. You do those two things. Pretty easy, right? Can everybody remember that? Be in the Word, be in prayer. Anybody forget? I'll I'll repeat it one more time for you. Be in the Word, be in prayer. And the Lord will give you utterance when you need it. That's good news. Now, Jesus hits the prophetic fast-forward button again. Verse 21, He says, Brother will betray brother to death. And a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. I won't let my kids read that verse. You will be hated... Verse 22, By all because of my name, for it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. And gang, suddenly we're back to the first commission after the end of the great commission. What are you talking about? In the last days, the first commission, the commission to take the gospel to all the cities of Israel, will be reinstated during a time that the Bible calls the tribulation. The tribulation is a period of time. Daniel references it in Daniel chapter 9. I don't have time to to go all into the tribulation tonight. Again, that's a great Revelation study. Revelation 6 through 19 talks about the tribulation that is to come, a seven year period of time, and the Bible is explicit about that time frame. But look at verse 21. It indicates a time of brutality, betrayal, and hatred, somewhat unparalleled to even today. Verse 22. Jesus connects this part of the message with the end. He says the one who has endured to the end will be saved. Well, guess what? Paul Paul was martyred. He's not alive at the end. Peter is not alive now. He won't be alive at, at the end. These guys all will have died. Now you can say, oh, well, he's talking about those who have endured to the end of their lives, right? No. 
He's talking about those who endure to the very end. He is talking to people, gang, who will be alive at the time, followers of Jesus, in the tribulation. Which is not you and me, if in fact we are servants of Jesus today. Because the church is called out. The church is not here during the tribulation, during that time where God is pouring out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. The church isn't here, so, so who's here? There's a group of people, because God is still pouring out His grace, He's still trying to save people, there's a massive group of people who will come to faith during that time, most of them Jewish. A remnant, if you will. This is a direct response, these three verses, to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 23. It says, you'll, When they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Well, wait a minute. The Son of Man has not come yet. He has not returned. Now to the early church, to read these words, they would have thought, okay, we just need to cover the country of Israel and we're in good shape. Because by the time we're done, he'll be back. He didn't come back. Not yet. Because he wasn't talking about that frame of time. Ironside says the following. And listen close to this. He says, The calling of the church has come in parenthetically for the present. Big word, parenthetically. It just means put a parenthesis around it. You have the first commission. Jesus gives it and it begins to roll and they start taking the gospel to all of Israel. But then something happened that stopped it. That stopped the first commission. It was Israel's rejection of Messiah. Immediately, the Gentiles began to accept Messiah. That's where you put the parentheses. And for 2,000 years, we have been in the parenthetical age. That first commission stopped. It will start up again on the other side of the parenthesis. When the time of the Gentiles has been fulfilled and we are taken out, God will now return to the Jewish people. He will return His focus there. He will pull out all the stops. Tells us in Revelation 7 that God is going to send out 144,000 Jewish missionaries. Jewish Billy Grahams, if you will, who will be going all over the world preaching the gospel. 144,000. Did you know right now, today, in the world, there are 48,000 foreign missionaries on the field? Every missionary alive today, about 48,000. God will send out 144,000 sealed and sent children of Israel. And that's very specific again in Revelation 7, and you can check that out. The Lord pulls out all the stops. It's a final ditch effort to save Israel, not to mention mankind. It will be the worst of times, but mark this, I think part of the reason we have Matthew chapter 10 is for them. Jesus gave it to the apostles saying, you're going to go through some hard times, be ready for that. He gives it to us saying, you're going to go through some hard times, be ready for that. And He gives it to those who will be alive in the tribulation, who will open up this Bible and say, okay, flee to the next city. That's what we have to do. We will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Praise God, He has come back. And we're going to get there. It's incredibly encouraging in every situation. And you know what? If you think the church is hated today, if you think Christians, there's anti-Christian sentiment, anti-church animus, you think that's out there kind of boiling around today? It's nothing like it's going to be during the tribulation. For people at that time who realize they missed the rapture of the church, but they decide they choose to give their lives to Jesus Christ, the persecution then will be unparalleled. 
And you might ask the question, well, where does all this anti-Christian, anti-church animus come from? Verse 24, Jesus tells us, He says, The disciple is not above his teacher, or a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house, that's me, Jesus says, if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, Satan, how much more will they malign the members of his own household? Why is there so much hatred and vehemence against Christians today? Because people hate Jesus. And we're just his followers. Jesus says, if they hate you, they hated me first. Know that. Be aware of that. Number five in our listing here, rejoice in the relationship of suffering. Well, that's not very encouraging. No, it's very, very... In fact, it's one of the most encouraging statements of the night. Rejoice in the relationship of suffering. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Paul went so far as to say, I want to know him... And the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. I've shared before, it's very interesting to watch Paul's life because as his life winds down, he heads to Jerusalem. And it's very obvious in his writings and in the book of Acts that Paul was heading to Jerusalem hoping to be crucified like Jesus was. When it didn't happen to there, Paul headed to Rome hoping that he would have the privilege, the honor of being martyred for his Lord Jesus. He wanted to know Jesus so intimately, he wanted a fellowship even with Jesus' sufferings and have his life conform to Jesus' death. I'll tell you what, that's intimacy right there. Cheryl's in Ghana right now, as many of you know. And for the first couple of days, she could not get a hold of me. The phone wasn't working that she had, the little cell phone that she got there, the, uh, the iTouch. There was no Wi-Fi signal anywhere that was working. I can just imagine Cheryl in the streets of Accra walking around going, looking for that Wi-Fi, maybe grabbing onto an antenna. <laughs> I couldn't talk to her for two days, and it was driving me absolutely nuts. I would die for her. I, I would. I want to be conformed to her such that if if she's hurting, if she's suffering, if she's going through turmoil, I'd rather it be me. That's what Paul was saying about Jesus. That's intense. Sent to represent. If I'm truly sent to represent Jesus, am I willing to represent Him to the point of having my life taken from me for His sake? The apostles were. They were ready to go. They weren't stupid about it. But their message, their message was unstoppable. Jesus says, look at how they treat me. As my followers don't expect any different. But note this also, Paul says, in recognition of Christ-like sufferings, there is great comfort. 2 Corinthians 1.5, he says, just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Yeah, my life's hard. Yes, I've been whipped, beaten, I've been stoned, I've been left for dead, I've been shipwrecked. Yeah, all that stuff happened. But you know what? I've been so comforted all the way. Paul's the only one on the ship that got wrecked on their way to Malta. He was the only one on the ship who was like, yeah, let's just pray about this, guys. Everybody's like, oh, freaking out. Well, we're going to sink. Let's just hang on. Let me pray. Paul turns around and says, look, don't jump overboard and your life will be spared. And they believed him and their lives were spared. Paul was amazing. Comforted in Jesus. So we rejoice in the relationship of our suffering. Verse 26. Therefore do not fear them, that is those who have come against you, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the 
light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. That's another thing to note. Shout the gospel from the rooftops. Shout the gospel from the rooftops. Romans 2.16 tells us God is going to judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. But if you stand by faith in the grace of God, if you stand in the grace of Jesus Christ, there's no reason to fear, but it is a reason, knowing judgment is coming, to shout the gospel from the rooftops. Now remember, up to this point, Jesus has been telling people, shh, keep it quiet. Don't tell what's happened to you. One exception was the demon-possessed man. He was the only one. Every other miracle, Jesus said, keep this quiet. Don't, don't go rushing off. And Now he's saying to the apostles, what I tell to you in secret, I want you to shout as if through a megaphone. Get the word out. The message must be magnified. Can you even imagine the national, if not global, impact if the church actually functioned in our own get-out-the-vote program? Every election cycle, they say that the party that really gets out the vote, that gets people registered, the Democratic Party this time around, they went, ran a phenomenal campaign. And they got out the vote. They registered people like crazy. They got them to the polls. They won the election. What if that was our attitude with getting out the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How would the world be shaken? Jesus says, shout it from the rooftops. 2 Corinthians 3.12 says, Having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. The darker it gets, gang, the brighter we shine. The more they try to silence the truth, the louder we become. Go ahead, Spencer says. Bring it on. (laughs) Try to silence me. Try to put a gag on me. Go ahead and do it, because I will just get louder. I'm going to stand up on the top of this barn and start shouting it across the valley. Verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You're more valuable than many sparrows. Here's another encouragement, gang. Hold on to your real value. When you're facing things like we've already talked about, rejection, repression, and outright suffering, don't forget where your real value lies. Michelle, it does not lie in your ability. It's a little personal conversation we had. It's none of your business. No, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, we were, we were just talking about children's ministry and all the things that need to be done. And, 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 and you know what? That's not where the value is. It's not. And she's doing a great job. But the value is not in what I'm able to accomplish in my strength, in my ability, in my power. That is not where my value lies. My value lies not in who I am, but in whose I am. It's not in what I can accomplish, but it is what in, in what He is accomplishing in me. It's, it's all turned back to Jesus. That's where my value is. That's my worth. And Jesus says, it is so important. You need to understand, two sparrows are sold for a, for a cent. That word cent there is the smallest copper coin in the Greek monetary system. You get two sparrows for that. Why would you buy two sparrows? Well, if you're poor, you would eat them. So for a cent, if you could at least get your hands on one of those tiny little copper coins, you could go buy two sparrows, you could have something to eat. And he says, you know what? You're more important than that. You're more valuable than that. You're more valuable than many sparrows. He says, even the hairs on your head are numbered. I've shared before, that is of great comfort to me. (laughs) 
He knows how many hairs I've got. And every time I lose one, at least I know God's there with me. Yeah, I saw it fall too, Rick. Bummer. <laughs> he is so intimately acquainted with you and with me. Have you, really honestly, when was the last time you counted the hairs falling off your head? You know how often your hair is falling off and you don't even notice? And according to Jesus, God knows every single one. Oh, angels, there goes another one for Crawford. <laughs> Just letting you know. Just saw it. He is so aware of my life, even, even to such an intimate basis. I had to tell you that Sharon came into the house the other day, came over to my side of the house, Cheryl's mom. And she said, I, I've lost my, my little gold chain link bracelet. The third one I've lost, it's in your house somewhere. Would you just keep your eye open for that? I'm just so I'm really disappointed because I love that little thing. So yeah, I'll keep an eye open for it. And we looked all over the place, couldn't find it. Yesterday, Joe comes over to, do, to help me out with our heater. I walk downstairs, open up the utility room, and there it is on the landing. I went, cool. And I got it, and I went upstairs, and I said, I said, Mom, I found your bracelet. And the first thing she said was, God is so good. I said, what about me? I found it. Don't I get credit here? But I love the reaction. She said, you know, honestly, I've been praying about this all day that God would just let me find it. She she said, I'm silly for praying for a little gold bracelet. And I thought in that moment, and I said to her, I said, you know what? No, you're not silly for that because that is how much God loves you. Even to find your silly little bracelet, even to... Numbering the hairs on my head, my value, my worth, as I am sent to represent, and as I am out there taking some hits for Jesus, and I have, and I will, and you have, and you will. Don't forget where your value lies. Don't forget where that love truly is. As a representative of Jesus and a child of God, you are of the highest value. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, Jesus says, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And I've got to admit, this has always disturbed me. Because from a legalistic perspective, it sounds like grace is conditional. If you do this, we're good. If you confess me before men, I'll, I'll do the same. But if you don't, <laughs> the hammer's going to fall. You better do your part or I won't do my part. That is not what Jesus is saying. Here's the deal. If I refuse to confess Christ outwardly, The question remains, do I really know Him inwardly? If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, confessing Him before men is not a problem. If it's a problem, I'd encourage you to go back to the drawing board of your relationship and say, do I really even know Jesus? Because if you're ashamed to confess Him, then you are not in relationship with Him. Confession of a relationship requires intimacy and the more I am intimate, the more I confess the relationship. And by the way, when Cheryl and I started dating, I was shouting it from the rooftop. That's the kind of relationship he draws us to. One of deep intimacy. Number eight, confess Christ without reservation. This is what those sent to represent do. We confess Christ without reservation. I think of, again of Paul before King Agrippa in Caesarea. And if you go to Israel... If you go, you will sit in the amphitheater at Caesarea where Paul gave his defense before King Agrippa. And it's impressive. And he had no problem confessing his Lord to the people at that time. Psalm 119.46 I will speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be ashamed. Romans 1.16 I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. What's truly amazing, if you want to think about it, is that Jesus confesses me at all. 
That's the incredible thing. That He would confess me before the Father in Heaven. Yet He says He chooses to do so. Verse 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Huh? Didn't the angels sing glory to God in the highest? Luke 14. And on earth, peace among men? Didn't Isaiah prophesy, Isaiah 9-7, that He would be called Prince of Peace? And now He says, I didn't come to bring peace. Surprise! Now you know who you're really elected. I didn't come as the peacemaker. I came to bring a sword, He says. I came to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. This is confusing stuff. Is this contradictory to who Jesus is really supposed to be? It's not. Listen. He quotes from Micah chapter 7, verse 6. Son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. And we think he was supposed to bring peace. But listen closely. Ninth thing on the list. Getting down to the end here. Differentiate between the response and the result. The response and the result. When Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace, He's talking about the response to the Gospel. Not the result of the Gospel. He knew peace would not be the response of His coming. He knew the response was going to be conflict. Because He knew there was going to be two brothers in one household. One believed and one would not. Conflict. He knew there was going to be a son or a daughter who came to faith in Jesus Christ. Good Jewish boy whose father was absolutely livid about it, conflict happens. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword to set father against son, son against father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Maybe the mother-in-law thing is a little easier to understand, but the others aren't. I'm just kidding. Gang, the problem is when the light came into the darkness, the darkness didn't understand. It just didn't make sense. What happens when we flip on the lights after worship? We recoil a little bit. Or you've been watching a movie and suddenly the lights come up. They always bring the lights up slow because they don't want to freak you out. They bring those lights up full right away. It goes right to the back of your skull. you know. And that's what happened when the light came into the world. The world was so dark, Jesus comes on the scene and people went, Ah! Oh! No! And conflict. Conflict was the response. It was not or is not the result. Peace will be the result of His coming. Peace is the result of Him conquering your heart. People may not have the initial right response. It may be conflictual, but in the heart and in the kingdom on its way, peace is the result. Micah chapter 7, it's interesting, verse 6, he talks about father contemptuously, son treating father contemptuously, daughter rising up against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He says all that. Listen to what he says in verse 7. Micah chapter 7, verse 7. As for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Because the result of His coming will be peace. You can know for certain that external peace, it eludes the world. So don't expect it here. Don't look for it here. There's going to be a sword. But peace is on the way. Peace is coming. Verse 37 He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Gang, when when it gets tough, 
And, and if, if conflict begins to boil and you cave to your family over Jesus, your testimony will fall apart. And your light will become dim. Jesus is, in essence, saying if there's anything or anyone that competes with your affection for Him, you won't hold up when it all comes down. Put me first, He says. Above all others. Rick, above your wife. You've got to put me first. In Luke, the, the parallel verse is Jesus says, whoever comes to me and does not hate wife, children, father, mother, and does not hate them for my sake, is not worthy of me. And what he's saying is the comparison has to be distinctive. You need to love me so much that no matter what your relationship with anybody else, it pales by comparison. Because the representative of Jesus Christ has no claim on anything but Christ. John 12.24 Jesus says, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So when we die to ourselves like He died on the cross, we, like Jesus, begin to bear fruit. As long as we're holding on to something else other than Jesus, we're limited in what we can accomplish for Him. Now when Jesus said this, He was again talking about His impending death. But the meaning extends to those who represent Him in the world. Now listen, I believe in all of this. And in everything that we've studied so far tonight as we read through this, I want to serve Jesus to this great degree, but I still get discouraged. I still find myself in that place where nobody seems to know the sacrifices I've made. Nobody is aware of what the time that I've put in this week. And so I, I brought my timesheet. I want to share it with no. No one knows what God has done in my life and what I've had to go through to get to this point tonight to talk to you about these things. And in my flesh, I can say, is it so bad to want something that I've done that's good to be noticed? I mean, are we as Christians just supposed to just wait until, you know, not share these things? Here's the last thing to jot down. The righteous one remembers the reward. The righteous one remembers the reward. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. And by the way, the righteous one is not you. <laughs> it's not me. The righteous one remembers the reward. Hebrews 6.10 tells us God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward His name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. The righteous one remembers the reward. Nobody else may ever realize or recognize what it is that I've done in my life in following Jesus. But you know what? Every single tiny good thing you have ever done in your life, Jesus remembers. He is aware of. He has not forgotten. I'm working so hard and no one's paying any attention. Yes, someone is. The righteous one, God the Father, is paying attention to everything you do that no one else is looking at. Read verse 40 with me. We'll finish. He who receives you, receives me. He who receives me, receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet, shall receive a prophet's reward. 
And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. In other words, someone who receives Christ because of you gets the same reward that you get. Which is really cool. But he says this at the end of this, of this great first commission. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink. Truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. So representatives, listen. God doesn't miss a single act of grace. God doesn't miss a single kindness. You know there are things that you have done for Jesus in your life that you have long forgotten about. He hasn't. He remembers. He's aware of every time. The cup of cold water, how insignificant is that? Let me grab that water for you. There you go. And we forget about it. And God goes, mark that one down. That's a good one. And He never forgets. Other people do. You know, as we go out in in faithfulness and love and kindness, we may at times feel like no one sees a single thing that we're doing. I remind you of Thomas over there in India. Did anyone really see what was going on? Was anyone really aware of it? Well, maybe some were. Those in India were. But gang, it's like like voting. It's like voting and knowing your vote's not going to count for anything. But it does count. Because your, your Father sees. Remember what Jesus said on the mount? Your Father sees what is done in secret and will reward you. He never forgets. There is something the Lord can't seem to remember. And there's something He never forgets. He can't seem to remember my sin. Hebrews 10.17, look it up. He cannot seem to remember my sin. But He never forgets my service. Even to the last cup of cold water. And that is the gracious God that we represent. And I hope you find some of those things encouraging because I believe that's the way Jesus meant it. To encourage us to be representatives, to be light in the darkness, and not to worry about all these other things. Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness. He'll take care of the rest. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this first commission and the encouragement that we here 2,000 years later are able to draw from it. Pray, Father, You will encourage us as we read back over it and think through these things. And help us not to be worried about the direction of our country, but, but Lord, to pray and to be people of prayer and to be passionate about that. Help us not to feel defeated, Lord. For those who do, help us just to know, God, You are accomplishing Your will. Father, we pray tonight for President-elect Barack Obama. We pray for his spirit and his soul, Father. We pray that you will give him your wisdom. We pray that you will impact his life in such a way that he follows you. We pray, Father, for policy decisions and all those things now that are ahead for our country. And we ask, Father, that you will now show yourself in grandeur and glory. And for our part, Lord... May we shine as lanterns, even if it gets dark. And in fact, if so, may we shine brighter. In the name of Jesus we pray tonight. Amen.